episode of the three technique a college football podcast at the intersection of the x's and o's and the jimmies and the joes we've got a special guest for our episode today sam con jr senior writer of the athletic also known as the tech spurt uh, and he has uh, all the goods on the texas longhorns on everything around the lone star state sam it's a it's a pleasure and an honor to have you on today no problem thanks for having me glad to be here Sam, we've got a lot to talk about, and it has been a long time since Texas has actually been back. But I think it's fair to say that the Texas Longhorns have arrived on the biggest stage. And today, I really want to get into not only the X's nose of the Sugar Bowl and preview that matchup against Washington, but really kind of peel back the curtain on what has changed on the 40 acres. Uh, there's no doubt that this program has undergone a, a, a real overhaul. I mean, Brees Hall made the comment a couple of years ago, it's five-star players versus five-star culture. It really seems like that has melded together for the first time since Mac Brown's heyday there um, you know, in, in Austin. As you've watched the, the Longhorns and covered the Longhorns this season, could you feel that it was a different team that was materializing? Yeah, I did. Just coming into the the season and throughout the offseason, you could tell the tone was different. Uh, it just felt like a different vibe around the place. And it was year three of Steve Sarkeesian. And, and you really never know until you see it, right? Because we've seen Texas ranked in the preseason and get some preseason buzz before and then not really live up to it in the past. But when you looked at the landscape of the Big 12 and – it seemed to be really wide open. And then you looked at the roster that Texas had put together. And what stood out most to me about the Texas team was how it was built. I mean, it was built really from the inside out. A lot of people like to pay attention to Quinn Ewers and all the skill talent they have. But really where this team has come the longest is up front, both on the offensive and defensive lines. And so when you looked at that and you thought, hey, if those guys play to their potential, this is a – a conference championship type of team and and that you saw them being picked in the preseason big 12 polls the number one team in the conference. That's the first time that's actually happened since 2009. So I think everybody could recognize the roster building that had been done and just the change in mentality and culture. You know, there was, there was just, you could see signs of it in year two, the, the close loss to Alabama, and finally getting a road win against Kansas State late in the season. There were just a few things that you could pinpoint here and there that say, hey, if they continue to get better, this is a team that could really make some noise in the season. Now, did I think they'd be in the college football playoff? Not necessarily, but I certainly thought they'd be in the conversation just because I thought they would win the Big 12, and just by virtue of that, they'd be in that conversation. This isn't the first time that Texas has had a lot of hype coming into the season, although, as you mentioned, first time that they'd been picked to win the Big 12 in 
uh, in a number of years. So let's start kind of with the the overhaul that Sarkeesian and staff have done inside the locker room as well as outside. For a long time, Texas had all the stars, all the the on-the-field talent, but it felt like it was a very unfocused team, maybe off the field, and that's what led to silly mistakes, breakdowns on offense and defense. And late in games, the Longhorns had a reputation of building a lead and then losing that, coming apart in the second half and losing to teams that they really had no business losing to. In your mind, what was part of the the turnaround? What was part of that U-turn where the Longhorns were able to finally say enough, now everything, all the pieces are finally going to fall into place? I think there's a, two things that I look at it. One is the depth, is the roster depth, I think, because I couldn't tell in year one and year two, was it simply they're wearing down in the second half because they don't have the depth, or is it is there something bigger at play with a culture? In year one, I think it was probably a little bit of both. In year two, I think it was more the roster. And now when you see where they are from depth standpoint, now you now you see them closing games out pretty strong. You see them finishing teams off, and or or even if they get into it, you know when you think about the Kansas State game or the Houston game where they were ahead and let those teams back in, they they didn't allow that to snowball and end up consuming them at the end. They were able to kind of buck back and and finish those games off. So that that to me is both a rostered thing where you where you're keeping guys fresh where. Byron Murphy in overtime against Kansas State can beat the the right tackle off the ball because he hasn't played 80 snaps. He's played probably 45. And so that's part of it. But also it was a culture thing too because I think you had a lot of veterans on that team and Murphy's one of them, Tavondre Sweat's one of them, Jordan Whittington. There's a lot of guys who were on this team even before Steve Sarkeesian got here, they were on that Alamo Bowl team in 2020 that are still there, that are major parts of the team. Christian Jones, I think of Jalen Ford. There's a, a lot of these guys who have been through all of this, and I think that veteran experience and that maturity has helped in a big way. And the other part of this, to me, is the alignment. There's alignment throughout the building because there's been staff stability for three years. Of the 10 on-field assistants that Steve Sarkeesian has, eight of them were there the first year and have been there all three years. A lot of the guys and support staff are still the same. And then even at the higher levels of the university, from President Jay Hartzell to Athletic Director Chris Del Conte to Board Chair Kevin Eltife, they are all pretty much in lockstep and in sync in supporting Steve Sarkeesian. And there seems to be a sort of alignment that I don't think has always been there at Texas, especially in the last decade plus when they struggled, where there was a lot of other stuff going on. I think everybody's been pulling in the same direction in this program, and that was much needed. I think Steve Sarkeesian has done a good job of shepherding everybody in that direction. You make a good point. The alignment throughout the athletic department, um, it's something that it feels like gets overlooked a lot of times, especially in the age of of Twitter X, whatever you want to call it now, where everyone is making these these snap judgments and you know writing off teams and anointing others, but folks forget it's such a top to bottom process that that starts outside of the football program, even. Um, and I, I think the top athletic departments know exactly what they need 
to support these teams that eventually build into championship caliber runs. Um, as you've seen the Longhorns improve over these last couple of years, and I mean, go from what felt like a true rebuild, right? Five and seven in year one, it felt like, okay, maybe Sarkeesian's not the guy. You had folks uh, certainly um, up the interstate that were saying this is a terrible hire. He's never going to work out. But Sarkeesian kept his head down. He kept recruiting. He kept selling the vision. You get a guy like Malik Muhammad to commit from the Dallas area, a guy that uh, had a teammate go to Texas A&M. He gets Muhammad to commit to the 40 acres, and now he's one of the biggest parts of uh, of that growing crop that has, has gotten them to the playoff. Uh, how soon can Texas be um, an Alabama or a Georgia-like threat, where I'm not necessarily saying, tell me when they're winning two or three national championships in a row, but are they at that level? And if not, when when could we see them be at that level? I don't think they're very far off yet because I go back to the roster depth and, and the way they've built it. And you look at these last three recruiting classes, I think they were fifth in the 2022 class, third in the 2023 class. They're in the top five right now in 2024. That's the kind of level you have to recruit to get that type of talent. And you really don't have to look much further than about 90 minutes east at Texas A&M where they were able to build the same type of roster talent. Now, they were not able to get everything else on board, clearly, because Jimbo Fisher has been fired. And, you know, we see what kind of a mess that team has turned into in the last two seasons. But when you watched Texas A&M get off the bus, there's no question about the talent level. Like, mm -hmm. the talent is there. You're starting to see that at Texas now. When when Texas, from what I saw in year one of Steve Sarkeesian to now in year three, it's a night and day difference between the body types, what they look like, how big they are, how fast they are on the perimeter. They're, they're, they're starting to resemble that. Now, the question of when do they become that kind of threat, I think gets answered next season. How do they fare in year one in the SEC when they are in a little bit of a different schedule and, and you're going up against more teams that have this line of scrimmage talent that maybe you don't see every week in the Big 12? How much how, how consistent are they? And are they able to follow up a 12 with or 13 win season with another double digit win season? If they can do that in 2024 and then you continue to stack those recruiting classes on top of one another. And I think you have a chance to sustain it and you have a chance to be in that conversation for a while because everything else is there. They've got the financial resources. They're going to now have the conference affiliation that they've wanted. Uh, they've got the alignment in the building. They've got the fan support. They've got the facilities. They've got every other equate, every other part of the equation. The NIL is first rate. So really all that matters is is being able to be consistent, keep it going, and continue to stack talent. And I don't think Steve Sarkeesian's going anywhere. He's a, he's at one of those destination jobs in this sport. So I, I couldn't imagine he'd go anywhere but at the NFL if he decided to make a change at some point. Mm -hmm. But you could you could potentially, if you follow this up this year, next year with another double-digit win season, yeah, you could be talking about a, a growing power once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking with Sam Con Jr., senior writer at The Athletic and the tech expert on all things Texas Longhorns, the Sugar Bowl. We'll get to the Sugar Bowl preview in just a moment, but uh, your most recent comments on Sarkeesian not going anywhere made me think of this. A couple of years ago, Kirk Herbstreet famously on game day called out Texas and said it's one of the worst jobs in all of college football because of the politics, because of the expectations, because of the fan base. 
Steve Sarkeesian walked in there never having done anything all that impressive as a head coach, uh, record-wise. And yet he was able to lead this complete turnaround. We've talked about how he got there. But where we sit right now at the end of 2023, did you expect this for the Texas Longhorns when Steve Sarkeesian was brought on, or are you surprised? No, I'm a little surprised. I, I didn't think that it would happen this quickly. I didn't think it would be in year three that they would be playing in the college football playoff. And like everybody else, I had a lot of questions about Steve Sarkeesian because, like you said, his record as a head coach when he got hired was 46 and 35. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was His winning percentage as a head coach was not even at the level of Tom Herman's. And, and Tom, Tom went 32 and 18 in his four seasons at Texas, and they fired him. But... They Texas bet on Sarkeesian because of the pedigree, because he worked under Pete Carroll. He worked under Nick Saban. He had been close to championship programs and he knew what it looked like. And he also won them over in a big way in, in the interview process with his plan for what bringing Texas back would look like. And and it goes back to what we we're talking about earlier with the line of scrimmage is, is that's really where it started was attacking the line of scrimmage. Mm -hmm. But I thought he was a really good offensive play caller. I mean, you watched that 2020 Alabama team, and gosh, it was fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, so you knew that part was going to be good. You knew the quarterback development was going to be there. You just look at the long line of quarterbacks that he has developed and recruited. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. The question was, is could he handle everything that came with Texas? And the answer at this point is resounding yes. I, I didn't expect it. But also, it was, to me, it was less about my skepticism about Sarkeesian and more about whether or not Texas could get its act together. And then mm -hmm. that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the alignment, is that they are finally aligned. And if they weren't, then it would be a lot harder on Steve Sarkeesian. But they've got everybody pulling in the same direction. That's helped it in a big way. And I think the staff's ability and his consistency has mattered a whole lot in this process. When they were 5-7, and seven, he wasn't kicking and screaming. He wasn't throwing everybody under the bus. He was the same guy every day. You talk to people in that program, and you, you ask him, what is it about Steve Sarkeesian? He is a positive guy. Every single day, he comes with the same energy to the building, whether they're 5-7 and seven or whether they're 12-1. and one. And I think that won a lot of support in the locker room, both from players and coaches, that they saw, okay, this guy, he's going to be real, he's going to be authentic, and he's going to be positive. And, and yes, you cannot go five and seven at Texas. And he set that standard right away that this is not acceptable. But I think he did it in a way that didn't demean people, that didn't uh, didn't get people off of, uh, you know, kind of off of what the task at hand was. And I think he was able to win a lot of support early. And he's been been the same guy now in year three that he was in year one, even though the results are drastically different. And I think that his personality, what he's gone through in his career, professionally, personally, uh, I think, and then the, that experience with Saban and, and Carroll, I think all those things have shaped him and helped him. Let's let's not forget, this is a guy that when he first took his head coaching job at Washington, he was 33 years old. I mean, that's pretty young to take a head coaching job. Now he's in his late 40s. I think he's learned a lot. He's a lot more seasoned, and it's allowed him to kind of shape this and understand, okay, here's what I did wrong. Here's what it takes to be a championship program. Here's how I can do it now that I got the second chance. And really all he needed was a chance. And man, he's taken and run with it. Well, he absolutely has. Consistency, again, the key, the theme that I keep hearing you bring up. Uh, as someone who 
who cut their teeth uh, just east of that in College Station would love a little bit of consistency in that program <laughs> as well. That's for a different episode, though. Let's go to the Sugar Bowl, which you will be there in person uh, to see as uh, the Texas Longhorns take on the Washington Huskies. Uh, a very interesting matchup, X's and O's wise. Uh, you, you look at previews that have been written for the last week now, and a lot of folks are focused in the trenches where you said Texas has really grown. They've taken leaps and bounds, specifically looking at Washington's offensive line, award-winning offensive line against Texas's defensive line, which is by far the strength of the team. When you look at that matchup specifically, is there one side that you feel like has an edge or maybe has a way to scheme around the other a little bit better? Yeah, I think first I'll give the edge to Texas up front with their defensive line just because no one's really been able to run on them this year. And there's a lot of teams that he even even tried to run. Now, what makes this fascinating to me is that Washington runs the ball less than just about anybody else in the country. I think they're fourth to last in rushing attempts per game this season. So they don't have to run to be effective. But as we all know, you have to have some run presence to make the defense respect that. Because if you don't, and they can just pin their ears back and come after the quarterback, then it makes your job as an offense a lot harder. So that's going to be really fascinating to me for me to watch is to see how does Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer scheme this up? Are they going to try to challenge Byron Murphy into Andre Sweat? Or are they just going to say, you know what, we're going to go wherever you guys are, we're going to go the other direction. You know, We're going to go out to the flats. We're going to stress you east to west and get your guys moving sideways and take them out. How much quick game is there going to be? Uh, and, and then also, when you look at Washington strength, which is Michael Penix and those three receivers, and you look at the biggest question mark on the Texas side, it's the secondary. And so can you generate enough pressure if you're Texas so that you're not leaving your secondary in vulnerable positions against this trio of receivers that's among the best in the country? That, that to me, and, and so I think in the run game, in the interior, I like Texas uh, I like the edge for Texas just because of what Sweat and Murphy have done all year, and I think it's it, they're just such a tough matchup for an interior. But on the edge and pass protection, Penix is not a guy who's been pressured a ton, mm -hmm. and if if this award-winning offensive line can protect him in the way that they have most of the season off the edge, and they give Penix time, it could be a long day for Texas because that's the thing is if Penix has time and you do not move him off his spot, he is going to eat you alive downfield, mm -hmm. and those receivers are so damn good. So that 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 lot, the matchup of Washington's offensive line versus Texas defensive front is to me is what's going to decide this game. No, no doubt. And obviously, you know, units on the field they don't necessarily function independent of each other. The pass rush helps uh, the the uh, the pass coverage and, and vice versa, right? Um, but there's no doubt on the other side of the coin, if there is a weakness, as you mentioned for Texas, it's in that secondary. And oh, by the way, Washington is the top passing attack in the entire country. Odunze, Polk, McMillan, those guys keep defensive coordinators up at night. What does Pete Kwiatkowski have to do specifically in the secondary to give the Longhorns a chance at maybe keeping this out of out of a track meet. I, I don't know. Maybe you can't keep it from being a track meet. But what, what can they do to try and limit, uh, eliminate those big three? 
They're going to have, first of all, they're going to have to survive the first half because they're going to be without Derek Williams, uh, their young safety, who mm-hmm. got a targeting penalty in the Big 12, game, Big 12 championship game. So it's going to be a lot of Michael Taff and Jaron Thompson. You know, you're going to have to have to trudge it through without him. Jalen Catalan, as we know, the Arkansas transfers in the portal, so he's not going to be in, in, in this game mm-hmm. for them. I think they're going to have to try to keep those guys in front of them as much as they can. And again, like you said, it works together. So they're going to have to get pressure up front and get Penix to get the ball out quickly because if they're having to cover for four and five seconds, it's going to be trouble. Uh, that that said, this is not a this is not a Texas secondary that's bad by any stretch. I think you know Terrence Brooks has been pretty solid this year. Ryan Watts has been pretty solid this year. I will be interested to see Jade Barron, who's who plays that star position for them. You know, kind of that hybrid safety outside backer role, kind of really I think serves more as like a third corner in, the, in Texas' scheme. Uh, he he is the guy to me who can really make this interesting because when they're bringing pressure from you know off the edge and 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 in that secondary, it's, and a lot of times it's Jaday Barron coming coming on uh, coming out the quarterback. So how much do you send him? How much does he get in the backfield? And can he kind of throw Penix off a little bit? If you can do that and mix things up a little bit, then then maybe you can buy yourself some time until you know, you've got a full deck to work with back there. But it's – I do think – you mentioned the track meet. I do think this is going to be a track meet just because of the two sets of offenses, the two sets of pass catchers and quarterbacks that we have. Uh, I think this is going to be a game that gets up there. Maybe just because of the nerves early on, maybe you may have some, uh, you know, some some jitters going on. But when you talk about the play callers and the offensive skill in this game, I, I'm not going to be shocked to see both these teams in the 30s. Yeah, yeah, well, hey – uh, that sounds that sounds pretty great right now, especially considering the first playoff game may be more of a defensive match. We'll see about <laughs> that. Um, with with Texas's defense, and, and we'll talk about. I want to talk about the turnovers in, in just a moment as well. But one thing that I've seen written about, and I think even Burnt Orange Nation put it out uh, in, in their preview, they wonder about the twitchiness of Texas's defense, especially in the secondary. If there is one area that you think Texas's secondary is vulnerable, it's what? I think it's at the safety spot. Both safety spots with with Jared. Jared Thompson's a veteran, uh, really good player. But uh, the middle of the field, I think, is where you want to attack. Uh, and then if you're attacking one of the corners, I think uh, Ryan Watts is probably the better of the two. So you're probably going on that other side to Terrence Brooks or even Manny Muhammad, who I think Manny Muhammad is you, – you mentioned him earlier – terrific young talent. I think he's going to be an absolute stud and you're going to see him get a lot of snaps, but again, young guy, you know, take your shots at him if you can, I think. So, uh, I, I think, I think there's a, if, if I were picking one, one spot to go after him, I think I'd go after the middle of the field. Uh, let's flip it around to the Longhorns offense, uh, no slouch in their own right. I think against a Washington defense that was much maligned early and they gave up a lot of yards early but still found ways to win and yet when you watched Washington get predicted throughout their Pac-12 slate it felt like everyone was saying okay this is the week that their defense the weak link it finally falls apart this is the week that Oregon takes them down Pac-12 championship game surely Oregon gets them again and yet the Huskies defense has found a way to respond to rise to the occasion every single time for Texas they're going to have to keep up with a passing attack in Washington that knows no upper bounds. How does Texas go about trying to pick apart this Washington defense? Yeah, I think it's, first off, when you start with the opening script for Sark, 
it's one of the things that he's the best at. It's it's there. They've you saw it against Oklahoma State. You've seen a lot throughout this season. Is they get off to quick starts. The, the question is, is can you sustain that? Mm-hmm. Can can you keep that going through the second third quarter? For me, it's consistency and accuracy from Quinn Ewers. That's that's number one. And number two, you got to have the run game presence. Ever and they they've done a good job of that ever since Jonathan Brooks has been out. C.J. Baxter, Keelan Robinson, J- Jaden Blue. They've all they've all had a presence, and I think they've all been able to to have an impact even without Brooks being the the twenty carry guy there. But for Sark, I think it's just mixing it up and it's keeping keeping going different directions. You know, they, there's a lot of misdirection. There's a lot of play action. A lot of you know stretching the field at multiple levels. Uh, and I think it's it's just a lot of variety because and you've got so much skill in this offense between A.D. Mitchell, between J.T. Sanders, Xavier Worthy, Jordan Whittington. There's so much skill on this offense. And if you if you can make sure that you are utilizing all those guys, then it makes it really, really difficult for an opposing defense to, to key in on one guy. Ultimately, what's going to make this all work and, and what is going to be fascinating to me in this one, too, is the pass protection, because I think this Texas offensive line has been a really good run blocking unit. It's been solid in pass protection, but not perfect. I, I think they, they've shown times where uh, they can get pressured at times and, and they've given up pressure. Uh, you saw that even in midseason, some of the games that they struggled. They've got to be – they've got definitely going to be on their P's and Q's from a protection standpoint for Quinn because he's going to have to have time to to make all this stuff happen for Sark. And, and so much of what Sark does is built off that play-action game. Uh, and so that means establishing the run. And then get protection, you know, so you can give Quinn time to get the ball downfield. How do you feel like Washington's secondary matches up with Xavier Worthy, A.D. Mitchell, even uh, J.T. Sanders, uh, and, and Jordan Whittington? It's not like Texas is uh, the the juvenile unit here out wide. Um, how how effective do you anticipate Quinn being able to to get the ball to to his big weapons? Yeah, I think I think they'll have a good shot at it. And and re, the really the guy in this that to me is is the most valuable piece of this is JT Sanders because you know the the outside guys are both terrific, worthy obviously with the speed. I think Mitchell's the, the entire package, but it's really Sanders is the guy that ultimately is the mismatch problem because of his size and his speed over the middle. He becomes so difficult for for backers or safeties to cover. And so once you start getting it to him over the middle of the field and you start having to kind of key on him a little bit, that's what opens it up on the outside and allows Worthy to get singled up and and do what he does, which is beat beat guys downfield uh, with his speed. So I think I think if I'm Sark, that's probably where I'm going first. And and like I said, it's uh, you've got a lot. You've got a, you've got no shortage of guys to go to. So to me, I'm, I'm hammering, J, hammering JT Sanders early and often and allowing allowing everything to open up for your outside guys. All right. We've broken it down. It's time. Make your prediction. Texas, can they get it done? Is this a blowout? Where do you see the Sugar Bowl ultimately going? I do think Texas gets it done. I think it's a high scoring in the 30s, like a 38-34 type. I I think this is going to be a back and forth. Again, I go back to the play callers in this one. Uh, You've got two really good offensive play callers and Ryan Grubb and Steve Sarkeesian. And with all this time to plan, uh, you got, you know, three and a half weeks to, to cook up what you're going to cook up and you're going to be an indoor field in a dome. And you got, you've got speedy receivers all over the place. You've got two great quarterbacks. This is, I think this is going to be a game full of fireworks. Uh, 
ultimately I think what it makes the difference again for Texas when we go back to the top is I think their interior defensive line mm-hmm. I think is going to help make Washington one-dimensional enough that's going to give them the edge and help them pull it out at the end of the day. Is there a, a team as we wrap this up that Texas would prefer to see if they do make it to the national championship between a rematch in Alabama, it's very hard to beat a team twice or a, a team that they haven't played in, in quite some time. Maybe it was the Rose Bowl the last time that they've played Michigan. <laughs> that was a long, yeah, that was a long time ago in mid 2000s. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't think it really matters to them. Uh, they've beaten Alabama. Certainly that they, they would have the confidence that they could do it again, even though this is a different Alabama team that they'd be mm-hmm. playing. Um, I think if 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 I was a coach on this staff, I'd rather see Michigan just because I don't think the talent level up and down the roster is the same as what you would see Alabama, especially especially up front. I think Michigan's line is terrific, and I think they've they've done a great job. But I don't think that I don't think they're just at the, quite at the same level from from when you go from one to eighty five, and you I just don't think that the mm-hmm. talent level is exactly the same, and so the the guys are just not built the same, and so. Uh, but I, I and also I, I don't think Michigan if if Texas were to face Michigan and get this into a high scoring game, I, I don't necessarily see Michigan as a team that's explosive enough offensively to keep up. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Alabama has kind of come around now, you know, Jalen Milrow as he settled in and that passing game, uh, you know, with with what he can do with his legs, uh, you've definitely seen they've been able to to finally get some rhythm offensively, and I think they can be explosive offensively and. Uh, I, I, it would be fascinating to me, and I, I think what we will end up seeing is I, will, I think we will see a rematch in Houston. I think we'll see Texas and Alabama going at it in the title game, but I, I don't think for Texas, I don't think it matters either way. I think they're going to have a, a, a certain level of confidence regardless of who they go up against. No doubt about it. There you go, Texas and Alabama, the prediction from the Texpert. Sam, really appreciate you jumping on with us today. Uh, tell the listeners where they can find you if they haven't already. Uh, yeah. And theathletic.com. uh, go to our college football page. You can actually, if you search my name on there, you can find and follow. And so you can get all my stories in your feed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course on any social media platform, S con junior S K H A N J R. So, uh, that's, that's pretty much my hand on every platform we've got. So, yeah. Uh, just personal note, uh, the athletic is the only subscription that I pay for of any sort of sports coverage. And it's because awesome. of, Writers like you um, that, that do just Appreciate such it. an excellent job. So, yeah, definitely if you haven't um, subscribed to The Athletic, uh, it is well worth it. And, and Sam is, is one of their ace ace writers that makes it all just, uh, just a, a pleasure to read each and every day. Well, that's going to do it for us here at The Three Technique. Appreciate each and every one of you hanging out with us, listening, watching on YouTube. If you haven't followed us on our Twitter account, Instagram, at 3TechPod, we would love to have you join the Jimmys and the Joes. And until next time, So long, everybody.